You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and every week, myself and my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber, alternate and bring you the information that you need so that you can advocate for your family's health and well-being. We talk about the issues that doctors themselves talk about in doctors' lounges all over the country. And we try to uh, give you all the information so that you can digest what is really happening out there and be able to understand um, what what it means when people tell you certain things about certain health care issues. And it seems like we're always now talking about health care. Um, our show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only healthcare think tank in the country that is run entirely by doctors. Our website is www.d the number four pc foundation.org, d4pcfoundation.org. Please, right now in this time where we are out there really fighting the fight, trying to do what you uh, need people like us to do so that we can protect your health care freedom, go to our website and donate $5 or $500. No amount is too big, no amount is too small. But for us to continue doing shows like this and do the work around the country, we need you to be part of our team. So please go to our website today. Um, our uh, guest today is a good friend of mine, um, it, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, waste a lot of time singing his praises because there's a lot to sing. Um, uh, my guest is Chad Savage, who is a uh, first of all, he's a policy fellow at the Docs for Patient Care Foundation and a policy advisor at the Heartland Institute. Um, he is also the president of Direct. Primary Care Action or DPC Action. He um, is one of the pioneers in the direct primary care movement, the founder of Your Choice Direct Care. Um, and uh, uh, despite the fact that he is a graduate of the University of Michigan, we won't hold it against him. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Chad, welcome into the doctor's lounge. Well, well, thanks. I was hoping to get Dr. Barber, but I guess, uh, you know, I can't, you know, I got the short end of the stick this week, so. You know what, you, 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 uh, you, 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 you unfortunately did not luck out. That's my phone, and I'm going to mute that. I'm so sorry. So, so, um, Chad, you are, yeah. you are, um, you know, really, uh, you're a Washington insider now. You've been going to Washington. You have been able to get access to people who are listening to doctors, um, which is the difference between this administration and the Obama-Biden administration. And um, their their goal for health care was to uh, to have the government run everything, and the Trump administration um, believes that people should be in charge of their health care, not the government, and not insurance companies. And I think that you've been successful in helping to shape the, the opinion and deliver the message. So congratulations to you on that, Dr. Savage. And why don't you, why don't you share with everybody... Um, the receptiveness of the people 
who you've been able to speak with in Washington. Sure. Well, th- thanks, Hal. You know, uh, obviously, uh, our work has uh, built on what you started. Uh, you and I met, if, if, if you may not recall, but actually originally was in 2012. And you had been uh, doing work for several years. We met at, at you know, at Docs for Patient Care uh, uh, when it was a membership model of doing calls on Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, you had, you were quite prescient. You you knew what was coming with the changes in the law. And, and unfortunately, I had to get burned on the uh, on the on the stove a couple times before I realized, uh, you know, that grabbing it wasn't a great idea. But once I I saw what was going on with ACA um, and, you know, you were just seeing levels of despondent, you know, physicians that were never seen before. Prices were skyrocketing. The care was being micromanaged to such a level that it was destroying the doctor patient relationship and, and fundamentally fundamentally um, undermining the entire reason I went to medical school, which was patient care, and was we were becoming more, you know, data input bureaucrats. Um, I knew that something had to be done, so, so you know, I started working with Doctors for Patient Care Foundation way back then and, and you know, working locally um, with people running for office and in office to try to create policy that was more conducive to a, a good doctor-patient relationship, and a lot of that's just good old hard work, writing letters, you know, shaking hands, meeting with uh, representatives uh, and such, and, and initially, honestly, it, it felt like maybe it was a hopeless um, endeavor because with the prior administration, um, we were we were at the door pleasantly knocking, hoping to have an audience, and and we wouldn't even be recognized that we were there. In fact, we were even vilified. There was a book um, that came out, a little cartoon book describing ACA uh, by um, it wasn't Ezekiel Manuel, but it was one of the other architects. Uh, back in the day, and they had pictures of doctors calling on Congress, which was us, you know, and they they did it in a very unflattering light to see that, um, you know, that that you know us as as trying to protect our patients and protect the historic doctor-patient relationship being vilified was was quite uh, demoralizing. So when the unexpected occurred in 2016, and and President Trump came into office, and suddenly the door swung wide open. And, you know, we had policy uh, uh, policy people inviting us in, wanting our opinion. I mean, it was, it was very, very interesting to, to, you know, I'm out in Michigan. I'm a little doc in a box. I have a small little practice. It's wonderful. It's successful. It's a direct primary care practice. Love it. But to be invited on multiple occasions to speak to these policy experts who are creating, uh, uh, you know, the president's agenda, and they were legitimately asking our advice. I mean, one of the uh, examples I have is last year I, I was invited to a feedback session at the White House, and I was surrounded by some of the heads of the major insurers. So you had Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and you had Aetna, and you had, you know, uh, you know, HAP and all the others, and then some, some guy from Brighton, from Brighton, Michigan. And um, it was interesting. Brian Blaze was, who I know you had on last week, was the the one running that meeting and when they started arguing against price transparency i believe it was the one of the heads of blue cross blue shield um you know he he rolled his eyes and i thought that was uh telling that you know the the old way of doing things the the protecting the establishment uh quo uh was was not was was not being bought into by by this administration. It was very very nice to see. Um, and then we've had wonderful success working with senators and, and congressmen, you know, like uh, Ted Cruz and Chip Roy and other true believers in free markets. And and uh, so so it's uh, it's great. I, you know, the, the the hope and prayer for myself and many others is that. 
the success we've had to date is allowed to continue, and obviously in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll find out. Well, you know, the, you've raised some very good points, and, and as I said to you off air, you know, I wish that we had a couple of hours today because there's so much to cover. But, you know, what you just said, Chad, is, is a great example of the need to just show up. You know, you yep. are you know a small a small uh, town doctor. I'm you know a, I'm a, I'm a specialist in in Atlanta, Georgia. But you know, one person can make a difference, and if a lot of one people get together, it makes a incredible difference. It's very very powerful. And in fact, you mentioned about white coats. You know, um, we we got uh, we got. Uh, ridiculed for that, and yet that that whole idea of of uh, massing on Congress with white coats was uh, was uh, stolen by the Obama administration on their white coat uh, sp- uh, spectacle at the White House um, shortly uh, uh, preceding and after the signing of the uh, Affordable Care Act. So it's, uh, you know, I think that it also underscores the need for every single person to um, to do something and make a difference, including vote. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, one thing, if I can yes, digress for a moment back to, to the administration and the people that are working there, um, one thing that blew me away is having talked to politicians for many years and having them look with blank stares at, at the idea of free markets and direct primary care and things that we were doing, even though these were fundamentally changing the dynamic within healthcare. I mean, but it was so different from what people are used to in healthcare because an entire generation of people have been raised with nothing but an insurance or governmental intermediary between them and their their doctor. So this was very foreign. That wait, wait, you're not you're talking without insurance. You know, people were bewildered. But when we started talking to this administration, the first time I met with Brian Blaze, I was actually blown away by how quickly he grasped the concepts. Right. I mean, so so the president. People can squabble about his demeanor, but he surrounds himself with unbelievable people, extremely intelligent people. Um, Brian wasn't only grasping what I was saying, um, but he was taking it several steps beyond with when I wasn't even done explaining the concept. He immediately grasped it and was thinking down, you know, several steps down the road. So, you know, th- this administration is, is chock full of uh, extremely intelligent people who are incredibly confident. Well, not only that, but um, they they come to this administration with worldly experience and and mm-hmm. uh, and incredible um, backgrounds. Brian Blaze, who uh, we're talking about, came from the Mercatus um, Institute at George Mason University, one of the most um, uh, renowned healthcare think tanks in the country, and so Brian was pretty much raised on all of the issues that um, we talk about all the time that are wrong with medicine, like certificate of need laws, and um, you know the the failed uh, me- Medicare system. Uh, so, so I think that when um, the Trump administration started um, looking for people to fill roles in in government. They brought people in who were problem solvers or who had the information. It wasn't more of the same or people who were looking to line their pockets. Yeah, and and doers. I mean, he didn't just you know get draw from the old well of of you know career 
politicians, he, he went out there and found the people that are doing the actual job, who are innovating in their relative industry, and he said, well, what are you doing and how do we facilitate further innovation? And so successful um, have, have we been, if I can tout our own horn, Please. Uh, on that one, is, is that you know we got direct primary care, which several years ago no one knew about. When I started mine in 2015, there were just a handful of practices in the nation that were doing it. Um, and uh, uh, now we've got, you know, there's some estimates that perhaps over 2,000 practices in the United States now now practicing this model, and we're actually cutting, you know, cutting costs while improving the quality of care by cutting out the intermediaries. And by simply going and, and, and talking to politicians in, in D.C. And, and in this administration, direct primary care was the second item on the president's health care plan, um, which, I mean, that kind of buy-in for a new, uh, a new model is, is, is tremendous. And, and I like to think that, that you know, none of, we are not paid, that um, our hard work has helped um, help that kind of innovation, and hopefully, will will help the care of, of patients across the nation. Okay, so let's let's um, pull this back into where we are right now. Every mm-hmm. single day, the the uh, country is bombarded by political advertisements that are um, pretty much saying that. Um, First of all, um, Amy Coney Barrett is um, in in uh, is being uh, pushed through so that um, that Trump can take away their health care. Um, the commercials are saying things like um, Trump has uh, no interest in protecting people with pre-existing conditions lie after lie after lie. So, um, you know, we can talk about the things that really are the successes of the Trump administration. And in fact, the things that these um, left um, uh, leaning or, or, or blatantly left um, advertisers are, are talking about are things that will happen in a um, Biden administration, in a uh, in a um, in a Democrat-led health care plan. So, why don't you yeah. comment on that? Oh yeah, well, well, you know, there's a funny false equation that people the, the way it's being portrayed is though health care didn't exist prior, prior to 2010 when ACA was passed into law. Uh, you know, oh, like if you pull away the ACA, there will be no health care. Well, well, that's not true. Health care existed before that. And in many regards, it was actually better, as I alluded to. I, I, I felt very personally in my own life the degradation of quality of health care with ACA. Um, but now it's been long enough that people forget that. And, and we people tend to have uh, think very temporarily. I mean, and that, I mean, you know, it's short term. So they think right now and they believe this hype, but they, they forget their own lives and their own lived experience. Um, you know, uh, medical visits became harder to get, longer waits and, and, and shorter, uh, became very bureaucratic and, and structured by by a, a third party, not by the doctor and the patient. And largely, the, uh, much of that was because of, of ACA and the ramifications of ACA. But even more importantly is that was not the end product that was proposed. Even at that time, Harry Reid, 
in, in the Senate at the time was, was saying that this was only the starting point. Um, in, in conversations with donors that were recorded and televised at that time, he said this is the first step and, and that the end goal was a single-party payer government-run health care system. So, so people need to remember that that is somewhat of a Trojan horse um, for single-party and, and the fact that because it collapses and how we know it collapses and why it's um, not good is everyone on both sides of, of uh, the political aisle want to change or improve about, upon the ACA which means it's not working, right? If it was working, they'd say, no, it's perfect, just as it is. Um, but, uh, but you, you know, that we have to think long-term, and we have to have recollections. And it's okay to mention, you know, what happened 10 years ago and refresh people's memories, because if the people on the other side are thinking in that kind of long-term game plan, well, we have to, too, and we can't just think, well, what I have right now, I'm... I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm not dying with it. You know, it's, 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 I can't say it's comfortable because most people are playing, paying exorbitant amounts for their, their insurance. But, you know, in the moment, I, I don't feel pain. I'm, I'm, I'm warm. I'm, you know, it's the, I have enough to, in, food in my belly. So therefore, I don't want to change anything because I'm terrified that's going to alter. But, uh, we can actually go back to better and improve upon that in, in a different direction. Chad, you recently, um, wrote an article, um, that uh, was in town hall uh, that um, is entitled debunking the Trump doesn't have a health care plan myth. Um, mm-hmm. Trump certainly does have a health care plan, doesn't he? Yeah, amen. It's it's just a different a different philosophy. So I wrote that because after going to his uh, his North Carolina announcement of his health plan, I had some of my liberal friends uh, attack me and say, "Well, he doesn't have a health a health care plan." And I said, "Well, yes, he does." And they said, "Well, where do you sign up for it?" And that's actually <laughs> a quote I, I pulled, and, and that gave me the inspiration to write that op-ed. And I realized that we were not talking about the same thing. They were talking about a top-down government-run health care uh, plan, like literally an a, a, a insurance-type plan, where I was talking about kind of a, a plan as in a framework to reach a goal. A framework. Yeah, a framework. Exactly. And, and, so, and that's much more what the president has. And, and so they envision a lack of a plan unless you have a spelled-out, written-out, uh, detailed um, governmental takeover of health care, whereas actually I was proposing and the president uh, is proposing a, a disentanglement of the government from health care. Um, and, you know, I made the analogy within the article that they're looking for a Hail Mary pass towards single-party payer, and that's the only thing they would accept as a plan where Trump is actually winning on five- and ten-yard passes, uh, moving towards the disentanglement of the government and, and approved medical care. Well, you know, I think that the uh, the thing about what you've just shared with your friend is the fact that since there's no plan to sign up for, that's interpreted as there not being anything. And I, that's the difference between conservatives and leftists. P- leftists believe that the government is... Well, let, let me just say that um, conservatives believe that people are are um, are smart and that they are capable and they can, uh, if you give them the opportunity to do things, that um, that the that they'll be able to succeed. Whereas leftists believe that people are not smart and that the government needs to take care of them, and hence. 
the reason why, well, if there's no plan to sign up for, there is no plan. And I yeah. think that's yeah, it's a- interesting that that ideology was perfectly laid out in actually the opposition to uh, to uh, Mitch Daniel, the precursor to Mike Pence in Indiana as the governor of Indiana. Um, and uh, Mike Pence took over the program for the Healthy Indiana Plan, which was their Medicaid plan. And and so people think that if you're a conservative, you don't care about the economically disadvantaged or how to take care of them. But that's not true at all. Actually, uh, Pence had a, uh, uh, Vice President Pence, when he was uh, governor of Indiana, had a wonderful plan called the Healthy Indiana Plan. And what they did is instead of having bureaucrats uh, within the government controlling health care, they said, listen, we're going to give some of this purchasing power back to the individual, the patient, the Medicaid recipient, and let them control their health care. Let them determine with their doctor what they want and what they need without going through, you know, costly authorization processes and, and having bureaucrats tell them no at the last second when they need an MRI or something of that sort. Um, and it was interesting because the the cynics out there, the the, the left wing cynics who who were counter to this, actually were quite derogatory because essentially their argument was, well, you can't do that. I mean, these people are poor. I mean, and you know, I mean, they're poor, so obviously they're 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 foolish, and you know, they're poor for a reason. And it was really condescending. Mm-hmm. Was, and, and these are the people who are supposedly looking out for these people based on their own proclamations, but in fact, they were the ones most degrading them. And when, when the dust settled, what they found is that the, these, uh, the Medicaid recipients, the, so the indigent, were much better at managing those funds than, than the insurance company and governmental bureaucrats. And they had a reduction in costs in the Medicaid program by around 20%, and they had satisfaction levels in excess of 95%. Right. So, you know, in Medicaid. So that's, uh, you know, that's an incredible success story by trusting people to manage their own funds, to, to manage their own lives, and recognize that no one knows more about your own life than you do. And you're, you're the best person positioned to make judgments unless you, you have a, you know, true mental deficiency. You're profound, you know, profound dementia or something of that sort. When, of course, you know, some, some agency could step in and try to protect those people. But those are the rare case. The vast, vast majority of people are well equipped to make their own decision making. 100%. So the Joe, the Joe Biden plan is, to strengthen Obamacare. He um, believes that that's the answer. And he thinks that the way to do that will be by having a an, another insurance company that is run by the government, the government option plan, to compete in the marketplace with the existing insurance companies. So why don't you comment on what that means to health care, to the system, and to direct primary care? Well, I think it's kind of funny that he says strengthening the ACA, because actually I would argue, though he's a proponent to the original law, President Trump has done more to improve the ACA uh, than Biden or Obama ever did. And the reason why is when it, it first came in, into uh, play, the competition within the insurance market dwindled dramatically. Mm-hmm. The number of options, the insurers who fled the market yes. uh, was astronomical. And what you had was something... Some, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like 90% of the communities out there had only one or two options within the exchange. Some so had none. not a market. Some had none. Yeah, yeah, or none. And, and under President Trump, um, that's actually improved dramatically. Now people have multiple choices within those ACA exchanges. Um, also, between 2013 to 2017, <clears throat> excuse me, premiums doubled. 
uh, and, uh, uh, and then once the, the Trump uh, uh, administration started having effect in, in that, that's now stabilized those uh, increases. You're not seeing you know 20 percent increases in premium every single year under under this administration. Um, the big worries are, are he, he wants to bring back bad aspects of uh, Vice President Biden. He wants to bring back things like the individual mandate, which for those who, who recall, that was a penalty uh, issued by the government for people who didn't want to buy a government-sanctioned health care product. And why that was so bad is, for one, if you couldn't afford it, you were penalized. You were, you were actually harming those who couldn't afford these overpriced uh, products. I mean, it was a really nice um, gimme to the insurance companies to say, "Well, we, these people are either they buy your product or they're going to be they're going to be penalized." And it was again called a tax by the Supreme Court, which which saved them. But um, uh, the individual mandate, why it was so negative, and why he didn't get rid of it, President Trump. He reduced the penalty to zero, which effectively neutered it, and Biden has said he's going to bring it back. And why that's so harmful is when it was taken down to zero, it allowed for other insurance products to come back onto the market, and short-term limited duration plans are one of those examples, and, and those are 80% less expensive than the uh, exchange products. It also allowed indemnity plans and an expansion of the health sharing ministries, which already existed and had an exemption of the ACA, but only four of them were, were exempt at that time. And now a plethora of them are coming into onto the market, giving people a lot more choices on, on what they do for coverage. And I had another op-ed out there where I talked about my own family, and we decided to uh, go the health sharing ministry route. And between DPC and using a health sharing ministry, so this is not the deprivation of medical care. We are getting medical care, I'd argue, better medical care under my DPC uh, doctor, my direct primary care doctor, and health uh, my, my coverage for catastrophic under my uh, health sharing ministry. In the last five years, my family of four has saved $88,000 over the premium alone wow. that we would have uh, suffered under uh, an ACA exchange product. That is, that in is my startling. Oh, yeah. And in that op-ed, I, I extrapolate that savings to 10 years. That that means the average family of four could buy a house every 10 years with not the deprivation of care, but with the savings on health care by just changing how we pay for the system. Amazing. Nothing else changed other than how we, uh, how we paid for the system. That is really unbelievable. You know, and you and the other things that Trump has done to strengthen health care that he gets no credit for are things like the association health plans where groups can mm-hmm. come together and, and pool their, their risk and save money, and um, the ability for employers to earmark money to uh, pay for employee health care through HRAs, health um, reimbursement accounts. And hopefully Mm -hmm. in the next Trump administration, we'll be able to see um, the full utilization of um, HSAs for all health care, including direct primary care. So many of these things that have been implemented have not had a chance to fully ossify. So we, we have only scratched the surface. The benefits have been profound. 
And oh. many of them have more recently been implemented, which means, you know, it takes time for those advantages for the insurance companies who are offering the alternative coverage products to come on the market to start offering. It takes several years to really see that. We're already seeing advantage from that, and we really need a chance for that to ossify to see the maximal potential of those changes. Right. And my worry is with the change of administration, they, they may cut that off at the knee oh. before it even has no. a chance to really advantage people. No, not may. They will and this is why everybody yeah. needs to if they're if they're interested in preserving their health care freedom they need to understand this and go to the polls and vote for their pocketbook and vote for their children's future which is yeah. is quite clear you know we've got a hard break right now chad and and i want to spend the next half hour the next half half of the show talking about covid because it really is sucking all the oxygen out of the out of the uh, news cycle so stay with us and we'll be back the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back in the doctor's lounge with my guest, Chad Savage, uh, a uh, direct primary care doctor, the founder of Your Choice Direct Care Michigan, and the president of DPC Action, uh, a uh, longtime friend and uh, uh, a healthcare warrior along with me. Um, in this in this segment, Chad, I wanted to uh, uh, talk about COVID, which is really um, sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And um, you know, I am um, writing a, a piece right now that is the things that I hate about COVID coverage, and um, and it's it's truly um, it's it's gone out of control the the blame game on trump um the shutdowns the um the false reporting i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of um go through the things that i hate and i think that'll be you know really a great jumping off point for our conversation so one of the things that that really um, just um, get under my skin is the fact that right now there are 325 million 
experts on COVID. <laughs> right? I mean, is it... Oh, yeah, no doubt. No I, doubt. You know, I, I've been well, a doctor... Is, in, in, interestingly, though, a unique situation where physicians don't, for one of the first times in history, we don't necessarily have unique or more information than the average person can access on, on this condition. It's probably the first disease like we've ever had yes. where where intelligent people can understand numbers can actually work up. No, I, I, I would... I would argue with you about that. I've been, you know, a physician for almost 40 years, and it has taken a career to know how to critically analyze yeah. medical literature and um, and determine whether or not it's valid or not. And doctors have journal clubs for that reason, so that they yeah. can discuss these these papers and and decide whether or not the methodology was correct, whether or not the conclusions are are correct. I had a a professor who always said, never let the data interfere with your conclusions. And we've we've reached a point right now where if somebody, you know, um, yells squirrel, everybody, you know, turns their head to look. And and it's really, it's, it's, it's impossible for the lay public to be able to reach um, rational uh, conclusions about what is is being written in medical literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't say the conclusions necessarily. I meant the access to the information itself. Yeah. So if you are able to scrutinize it correctly, you can. And and one one of the interesting things, though, to kind of push back on that is 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 that the people who most should be well equipped to make appropriate determinations based based on their training are coming up with some of the most implausible explanations. Yes. So it's the very medical experts, you know, uh. that that we usually defer to. That are coming up with very, very harmful policies and, and bizarre interpretations of, of the data, making solely single variant analysis, only looking at COVID, not looking at all on the, on the ramifications of the interventions that they're doing themselves and, and how that could destroy lives and even kill people. So that's number two and number four on my list. <laughs> we, no. So <laughs> you're just trying to steal your glory there. Not at all. No, you are. You're. You know. I think that people who are um, are rational human beings, and I'd like to think that both you and I are, can really look at this. Um, not in a political way, but actually be able to um, look at this critically. And you turn on the TV, and every day, every news show on on mainstream media, cable news, has a doctor on. And just because you have an MD or DO after your name doesn't mean that you are an expert on COVID. And yet, these people... Uh, if you, the the reason why they're on certain on certain broadcasts is because they share a view that is consistent with the outlet that is reporting the news. Yeah, yeah, and and even in, well, amongst MDs and, and DOs, you'll have people 
criticizing and saying, well, if you're not an epidemiologist, you know, you can't speak on it. Oh, well, you're an epidemiologist. Well, you, you know, you're not an infectious disease specialist. You know, I mean, just, just it, basically it's not the person's credentials or ability to interpret the data. It's if fundamentally you're saying something that doesn't agree with my preconceived notion, so therefore I'm going to invalidate you in some way. And Scott Atlas is the classic example of he that. He is. Since he's, yeah, though he's incredibly rational, um, you know, he's not a trained epidemiologist. So you, well, the irony of that is on CNN, you get someone like Sanjay Gupta, who's, uh, you know, a uh, neurosurgeon who's criticizing the radiologists because they're, they're, they're not an epidemiologist and can't interpret the data, even though he's interpreting the data as a neurosurgeon. Right. So the, the hypocrisy is, is, is profound. It is, it is just that. It's, it's all hypocrisy. And, and, um, you know, when people are, staying at home and they are tuned into these broadcasts and this is what they're hearing 24-7 literally 24-7 that ticker on the bottom of the screen yeah yeah it's it's terrifying stuff it really uh, you know the president talks about not trying to induce a panic and actually I think that's a a really good thing I mean what, what advantage would panic have you know so you know he's a half full kind of guy and i can understand that people could look at it and you know be more pessimistic and and think half empty and and in normal times we would have people of goodwill who would be looking at these problems and politics wouldn't be on the table at all with addressing something like this it's it's actually ghastly that that, that's taken over our, our the discourse on COVID. i mean this is this should not and never should have been politicized at all but because people could see political advantage by vilifying um, uh, via COVID, it's it's become political. And I mean, you shouldn't be able to predict based on someone's stance of you know whether we should wear masks or not, what party affiliation they have, and yet that seems to be the case. Well, masks. This is one of one of the uh, item five on my list. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Um, you know how your practice is handling this, but where where well, we don't have a choice. Well, <laughs> the, I know, the, uh, I know. You we're are in Michigan. And, yes, you're yeah, in the we, People's Republic our, of our Michigan. Our licenses have literally been threatened if if we we don't use them. They the many police departments locally have said they will not enforce that. So the governor said, "Oh well, geez, if the police departments are going to enforce it, how do I make it? I know I'll threaten the businesses' licenses, which is." just an incredible aberration of how licensing should ever well, be it's done. it's an abuse of power. Being a, you know, on, uh, just colossal abuse of power. And is this reflexive authoritarianism, do what I do or I'm going to punish you. Right. And to use the licensing bureau as a mechanism is, is just, um, that is not, it's incredible bastardization of the, of the licensing authority. Well, let's, let's circle back to masks because what I wanted to say yeah. is that in our practice, just like most medical practices what we're trying to convey to our patients is that there is concern about their safety and well-being and so you know we we make sure that nobody comes into our office without wearing a mask if you don't have one we will provide one um temperature checks um we we clean the rooms between patients and social distancing when we can mm-hmm. um reasonable measures all the reasonable measure, measures but what is really just maddening to me is the fact that probably over 50% or more 
and this is this is anecdotal because I don't have data, real data, and I don't want people to think that I'm making it up, but more than more than half of the people that I see do not have their masks on properly. They they have their nose exposed. They have you know them partially hanging down so their mouth is open. They will. Um, it's it's just laughable. And we're you know the people who are out there who are um, making the case that masks will will solve this this pandemic are are also. Um, politically inspired, you know. You look at Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, who who sat in Senate hearings, um, waving a mask, saying this will prevent ninety nine percent of COVID transmission. And then the next day, next day, the CDC came out with a statement that said masks do, do not protect you; they protect others. So you know yeah. they talk against both. You know, uh, there, there's 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 no real science behind any of this. It's yeah, so it's, it's the insane deviation from the historic reasoned approach and cautious and avoiding hyperventilating. And, you know, we're supposed to be somewhat emotionally disconnected as physicians, but, but for whatever reason, people are incredibly uh, emotionally invested in, in an outcome. We should be looking at these things impartially and looking for truth not looking for that which fits my preconceived notion. And that's unfortunately what's really going on. Um, because with the masks itself, as recently as, as May, the CDC had a document saying there really is no science backing this up. They, they uh, did a meta-analysis where they looked at prior uh, studies uh, looking at mask use, and a lot of this was pre-COVID, so they had to find analogous viruses like influenza. And they found that there really was no data supporting uh, uh, a lack of, uh, of transmission when wearing a mask. In fact, it wasn't a lack of data. It was negative data. They, showed, they suggested it didn't work. And then just two months later in July, and there, trust me, there hadn't been just this massive wealth of, of new studies that came out in that two months. They totally flipped their position, and their position paper was saying, you know, the science supports the use of masks. And, and you looked at the, the you'd reference it. So you, I, I looked at it. I thought, wow, that's a big change. So I went down to the reference area, and the studies they were referring to were not actual transmission studies. They were kinetic studies, meaning they used uh, – so these are not totally invalid – but they used slow motion cameras to see how particles moved in the air, and then they, they made suppositions about transmission rates based on the movement of those particles in the air. So that's plausible, right? That's yeah. a plausible mechanism of, of action. But right. as we've been burned many times in the medical community, plausible explanations do not always meet reality. Right. So what, what, and also, again, single variant. It's looking at the movement of particles in a perfectly positioned mask that's fresh and new. What we know about that is this is not how people wear masks. And study protocols are always optimized worlds. Real world uh, usage of meds and, and medical devices don't always reflect the, the optimized setting in a study. And we know, for example, I believe it's 14 fold increase in face touching when you're wearing a mask. And right. I, don't, I don't know about other people, but I, I have a lot of trouble touching my mask all the time. And touching the outside of the mask does not get rid of your risk because no. you touch the outside of the mask and then later rub your eye and, and contaminate yourself through the nasal lacrimal duct, the right. duct that drains off the eyeball. 
So, um, and, and they know that the masks get saturated with moisture within about 20 to 30 minutes, and their u- utility goes way down at that point. And I've, I've seen people who come in, and there was a lady I saw the other day who she pulled off her mask, and it was a paper mask, and it had numerous shades of lipstick on the inside, which means man, she has been wearing this thing for weeks on end, and it was covered in putrescence. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you got this spittle-soaked rag pushed against your face and that's supposed to be healthy yes so it and 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 of course she was wearing it beneath her nose anyway right so so this was this was essentially something to simply uh allow her to get out of the governor's order that you had to wear a mask it was not doing anything functionally to protect her other people and in fact may be exposing her to risk the way it was being worn and and, that's the sad truth is that's that's the reality that is the reality uh, and yeah, people, and you know, it, masks. People are not washing those every single day. No, they're not. It's, 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 you go to a restaurant, for example, and you know the waiter is wearing a mask, but they're fiddling around with it, and then they're touching your yeah. plates. And so this whole regime is just, you know, it's 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 basically a narrative to support a position, and there's no science at all behind it, and yet it's become so politicized and so emotional that if you're not wearing a mask, you're a criminal. Um, What I'd love to see is they've got those germ uh, replicating fluorescing solutions that you can put on your hands to show how well they they, uh, wash and you can spit them out and they can follow them. Is a lot of people when they cough or sneeze and they've got a mask on, they'll put their hand up to the mask, push it against their face and cough. Well, these things are not N95s. I mean, they, they, there's, you know, stuff is going between the fabric. So I bet you they're covering their hand in, in, in germs when they do that, whereas the pre uh, the prior prior to COVID, the way of handling that was actually cough into your elbow. Yes. You know, instead instead of putting that over your face and coughing into your hand with, with a porous That's right. uh, paper and, or, or, uh, or cloth in, in between, um, your elbow is actually probably safer. Um, and, and in reality, most of the spread, if you can believe, again, the, the kinetic studies, is when people cough or sneeze because those are just plumes that come out during those times. Restful breathing patterns are not as dangerous. So you could use an intermittent facial covering uh, for those times when you cough or sneeze because historically that's called a Kleenex. Um, you know, <laughs> so it's right. an intermittent facial cover. Right. And, and exactly. you use it during the times when you're most at risk of transmission. That's when you're coughing or sneezing. And thankfully, most people have a concept that they're about to do so and can put something against their face. Exactly. Use an elbow sleeve or, or something. Let's, let's, let's pivot for a second and talk about the reporting regime. Can the media be trusted? That's really the answer. You know, every night we hear the figure about how many deaths there have been in the U.S. and how many cases there are and how many new cases there are isn't really i mean the number of of cases there's been now what is it one point uh or 40 40 million cases 40 million positive you know covid patients um let me let me ask you this does that really matter that's like keeping a running score it's like you know saying to somebody who is making forty thousand dollars a year that they're a millionaire because over the course of their life they've they've made over a million dollars it that's that's irrelevant it's what we're seeing at a particular point in time and the real statistic that is important is what is the survivability of COVID, yeah. if you get it, and right now it's ninety nine point seven percent. 
and and all this other reporting is is fear mongering. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the uh, the problem with case counts is it's not really the case that matters; it's the consequence of the case. Yes. So if, if, for example, this became purely asymptomatic, it wouldn't matter if there were seven billion every single person in, in the world contracted it if there's no consequence of that contraction. Um, you know, so so really, the hospitalization fatality rates, you, you know, are, are much more uh, uh, relevant. Thankfully, those have been fairly low. I mean, I know there may be a slight uptick recently, and obviously, we hope it doesn't go much higher. Um, but uh, uh, but cases alone are, are are somewhat of a fear mongering, and it's very much a detection bias too. Because if you're testing like crazy, you're going to find a lot of asymptomatic cases. If you look at just our own state of Michigan here, we have essentially as many cases now as we did in the height in early April when there were 250 deaths a day from COVID in, in the state of Michigan. Well, we're like either single or barely into the double digits in, in the state of Michigan with that same case count. And, and that's not, that, that's because they were probably vastly undercounted then. And they're now perhaps even be uh, overcounted now. So you've got to really look at those, the, the ramifications. No one would care about blood pressure if it wasn't associated with heart attacks, right. if it wasn't associated with strokes. We care about it because of the consequence. Right. Um, so we really need to look at that. And, and talking about the media a little more, the coverage, um, what makes me most fearful about the coverage is the censorship that's occurring within the coverage. Right. Because historically, when you had something, uh, anything going on in society, you'll have two competing theories. And you'll hear people reading. One more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll have multiple ideas, and they're openly exchanging ideas and debating within the public square. And this allows people to kind of listen to the various arguments and draw their own conclusions. Well, you have an intentional suppression of one side of, of that debate. And, I mean, uh, more than suppression, pure flat-out censorship. Right. Scott Atlas um, got, got uh, um, delisted from Twitter. Yeah, he's part of the task force. Early on, from the urgent care in California, who were reporting that they were finding numbers far less than the publicly reported numbers at that time from the CDC, and they were widely derided and censored from the internet. And yet, subsequently, now it turned out that they were probably right. You know, their numbers were much more accurate than the CDC's numbers uh, at that time, and yet they were censored from from the internet. Why this is so bad is that. If what what it leaves, all that's left after all the censorship, so you don't get the people are very, very scared. And again, you know, maybe that's justified. Uh, but then you get people who are more calm and rational, and, and people find some happy, happy place in between that maybe they themselves agree with, between the two extremes. Well, now you're left with one extreme. Only the hyperventilating, screaming, crazy, the world's going to end, and, and there's no countermeasure to that. So people given a lifetime of, of double um, opinions now are only left with one opinion. They say, oh, my God, normally I hear a countervailing argument. I hear no countervailing argument. That means the world really is going to end, that everybody's in agreement. Right. And I think it's actually made the response to COVID far worse. The censorship has been exceedingly damaging. Yeah, 100%. So we got 10 minutes left. And I'm going to do lightning round on a couple of things. So um, people are dying at um, at a far lower rate than they did initially, um, as you pointed out in Michigan. And um, part of that is probably that we have better mitigation 
it means that we're able to um, social distance. We can't. We cleaning surfaces. We're washing hands. Better, th- maybe better therapeutics. There's a lot of people who are doing things like taking vitamin D or zinc or things like that. But the question is, do you think that the virus is changing, Chad? Is it um, uh, attenuating? You think? Well, I'm going to say something that's very, very controversial. No, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no one will say that. I don't know. Right. You know, everybody has to feel like they have to come up with some argument. I'm actually not sure. There's many possible explanations for that. One potential explanation is it's not the same risk people that are being infected. Right. So we see many more cases. But since um, not all all over the place, but sometimes you know uh, the younger people are back engaging in their lives as they should be, are contracting it. Well, they have vastly lower chance of suffering right. a consequence. Right. All the nursing home, the elderly, all the nursing home patients have been killed by the governors in their states already. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a it's a really dark statement, but there's some truth to it. Yeah. Um. You know, the people who are most susceptible have have. Uh, have largely passed from it. That doesn't mean that others may not too. And you know, obviously, you know, if you're going to put money and efforts into protecting anyone, it should be those who are most at risk. In fact, I would argue that when this is all said and done, and we look back, we're going to realize that this was primarily a disease of the vulnerable elderly. And how we responded by shutting schools would just make uh, no sense. Great. I mean, the opposite would be would argument would be true if you had a disease that almost exclusively killed children, would you shut down the elder care facility? Exactly. I mean, that, there you know, we go. Now, so I want to no go back to this because this is really one sure. of the three points I wanted to make in the lightning round. So schools, shutting down the schools. I'm going to say, throw out a couple of things. I'm going to give you, you know, a couple of minutes to talk about them. So shutting down the schools. Um, aren't teachers essential workers, just like people who are stocking the grocery stores, I would maintain that they're much more essential workers, and yet we're letting the teachers' unions, their tail wag the dog. And, you know, we've we've had, we've had um, areas, or not areas, we've had um, uh, uh, instances in our history where there have been really bad diseases that have been out there and we've not shut down society. We've had polio in the 1950s and people were deathly afraid and yet we didn't stop living. We didn't stop, you know, going to work or going to school. There was HIV in the 1980s. People didn't know where HIV was coming from. Um, there was some thoughts but nobody really knew and it was it was it was ravishing um you know populations in this country and we still don't have a cure for that um so mental health of people are being affected by this this shutdown especially children where the suicide rate in children's hospitals are being reported um at uh, going up at alarming rates so i'm going to give you about three minutes to comment on those things because i want to say one more thing before we have to leave sure well everything you said i just i agree with and i think prior generations recognized that you can't shut down society because the shutting down society will result in death. And so they didn't do that, whereas we're under some bizarre fallacy, and this is a blessing of our prosperity, that somehow we can shut down society, print money, and that somehow that equates economic production. Economic production is just not dollars. Economic production is actually things being made, services being provided, and that includes food and education. And, um, you know, there was actually, uh, there have been studies that, that have suggested that if when you cut education, people's lifetime earnings go down. 
And as their lifetime earnings go down, they, uh, people who, who earn less over the course of their lifetime tend to die prematurely. So you could make an argument that in an attempt to spare our elderly vulnerable today, we are damning our children to a premature death when they themselves are elderly. That's a great, um, that's and, a great op-ed there, Chad. Already did it. <laughs> so feel free to share it. Um, actually, I think I did. I, I don't know. I've written so many recently, it, it's hard to remember always. Uh, I made that point on a different show. The the uh, the other thing, um, and, and I haven't written this one, but I, I thought about doing it, was that it, it proves, on a slightly different note, it, I think what we've seen with COVID is that it disproves the concept, the Marxist concept of society raising children, because the best proxy to what would be a societal caregiver are the teachers. And the sad truth is, is when the first hint of danger ar- arrived huh. with COVID, the, the teachers union they headed for the hills. Ran for the hills. Yeah, they ran for the hills. And and so what that shows is there is no there is no substitute for family. And the Marxist concepts that want to de- de- degrade the family are incredible dangerous because parents will stand through danger to take care of their children um, surrogate caregivers of the state and what would not do so that's an excellent point I love that that's fantastic lastly you know every single day every Democrat politician include especially Joe Biden is is basically blaming Donald Trump for the handling of the covid uh, pandemic and that all of the, according to Biden, um, 200 million lives in the United States could have been spared <laughs> if if Trump would have handled the COVID um, uh, cata- the COVID pandemic differently, and yet we we are seeing um, COVID on the rise in Europe. Is that is that Trump's fault too? Yeah, yeah, no, it's craziness. It's all selective, you know, right, how people are interpreting the data. So if you said back in March, when the projections that 2.2 million people in the United States were going to die from this, and you say, well, guess what, <clears throat> we're going to take some grand steps and reduce it to 200,000, there would have been great adulation and celebration. But since it's, you know, they have to change the goalposts because no matter mm-hmm. what really happens, the narrative has to be that Trump somehow failed. Yes. You know, and, and they could have been two deaths and they would have said, those two people, they would have been alive if not for Trump. Right. You know, so really the numbers don't matter. The, the narrative was the same. They make the narrative, the numbers fit the narrative. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I think that... Um you know, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, like I said, I wish we had another hour. We really have so much more that we can say. But um, I appreciate you being on today, Chad, all the hard work that you've um Put forth trying to uh, uh, educate the American public. I want to urge everybody to listen to the things that we've talked about today. Um, and and if you have not voted, go vote and vote um, uh, accordingly um, based on on the uh, on preserving our country. So, Chad, thank you for being with me today. I think so. All right. Well, come back next time in the doctor's lounge. Uh, my, my, uh, I'll be back in two weeks, and uh, we'll have uh, um, we'll have voted on at, by that time, and we'll see wh- wh- where this goes. So, thank you for being with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>